This is the Average Guy Network, and you have found Cyber Frontiers, show number 24, recorded on July 27th, 2015. Here on Cyber Frontiers, we explore cybersecurity and big data and the technologies that are shaping the future all from an academic perspective or an intern perspective that works this summer. I'm your host, Jim Collison, broadcasting live from the Average Guy TV studios here in Bellevue, Nebraska. And of course, we post the show with world-class show notes, uh, usually written by one of these guys, out at TheAverageGuy.tv. If you have questions, comments, or contributions, you can contact us. Send us an email, jim at TheAverageGuy.tv. You can track me down on Twitter, at Jay Collison, or you can call in those questions to us, 402 402- Four seven eight eight four five zero and play those questions right here on the program. The Average Guy TV course is powered by Maple Grove Partners Web Hosting. That's just Christian over there. He's he's uh, he's holding those servers up. Sometimes he spins the generator with a hamster to keep them running. But get secure, reliable, high-speed hosting. That's not true. From people you know and trust. And for more information, of course, visit MapleGrovePartners.com. Uh, if you are out at the Average Guy TV doll, you know that's what that's who we host with. And uh, he's got a few more spots if you're interested in doing that. Check it out. Now, Cyber Frontiers is a part of the Geeks Network. Find the link to this show and many other great podcasts out at thegeeksnetwork.com. All right, the guys are joining me tonight. We're kind of in the final throes of internships. Guys, hard to believe that we're already thinking about the end of summer. Christian, of course, has spent his summer in Maryland. And, well, yeah, Maryland? Maryland, D.C., Yep. Maryland, D.C. area. Welcome, Christian. Hey, thanks. Good to be back. Um, good to have Ashton back as well. And uh, looking forward to tonight's conversation, which is definitely new, well, not a new one, but uh, a little bit of a different tack than we usually take. So it should yeah. be fun. Yeah. And, of course, Ashton has been hanging out with me. Um, Ashton, I'll be honest with you. I thought I would see you more this summer than I have. You and Colin have kind of been locked in that conference room right there on the river. You had a spectacular view, but uh, welcome to Cyber Frontiers. Yeah, it's our focus chamber with with Colin and I in there. Um, but I'm I'm here. It's my, I think this is my last one in Omaha. Uh, yeah, so, so we're gonna we're gonna make it count. Yeah, um, no, actually, it's good. And one one other thing, I'm not gonna keep my camera here, but I'm matching your shirts. So. Nice. Got the celebratory Gallup shirt on. Oh, we, Christian, we should have told you. You should have wore your Gallup gear yeah. tonight. <laughs> I only wear when I work out, apparently. So. Yeah, that was. Those are some classy pictures. If. <laughs> I don't know if you were in the loop on that one, but there, oh, yes. there, there yeah, was some. The feed. <laughs> Christian is putting on some muscle. Yes, so. Christian has been working out this summer and adding uh, adding some body weight to it and some muscle, and so nice job. Hey, if that's all it takes to get you working out, man, I'll just I'll, once a quarter we'll just buy you gear <laughs> and uh, get you to the gym. So add add some of that muscle. All right, let's dive in uh, as we think about this. Let's see, who do I? Ashton wrote the wrote the post, but we want to start with Ashton. Yeah, go for it. Let me throw it over to you. So a little background on this one and the 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 sort of the impetus for it um, was a TED talk that we watched in my reverse engineering course. So I was kind of you know towards the end of the semester, and I think that my professor, who was a great great professor and everything, actually worked at the NSA, but um, he was kind of running out of content for these like three hour long classes that we had because they only met one day a week, so. Uh, to, to, to to give us something interesting to watch, we watched the, the TED Talk for like half the class. Um, and it was on it was by this guy named Chris Damas? Domas. Domas? I just wrote the article Domas. Um, and he 
was he, he gave this talk on, on reverse engineering and sort of he, he tells some he's kind of a funny guy tells some some stories about how he he part of his job is to uh, take recovered binary files just essentially they, they don't know what they are and try and find some sort of you know what 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 it actually is and what it represents whether it's code or image or video or music or whatever what, what have you so he uh, he starts with a story about how he's looking at this file and he's not, not quite sure what it is and uh, he, he it, as part of like the TED talk they have those you know basically just images that they'll they'll put on the screen and it's a whole block of ones and zeros um, and he's like so I, I kept going you know deeper and deeper into this but I didn't really know what was happening and it keeps like zooming out on these more and more ones and zeros um, and as he kind of reaches the climax of the story it, it zooms out and you realize that the ones and zeros are shaded in the picture of a cat um, which is kind of hilarious because he spent like the last several hours looking at binary for an image of a cat um, and I, I, I sincerely hope that that particular story was kind of an exaggeration and kind of a, a, a the point he was making was that this is not a task that's very easy for humans to do. It's not. It's not easily decipherable. It's. It's not something that lends itself well to our our senses. Like primarily, the one that he focuses on in this is is vision. So uh, he has another project he's working on, and, and this time he says, "Okay, I'm gonna uh, go back to my basement lab and." and try and turn this into something that I can actually use. So he ends up transferring it into these really colorful images that, well, I mean, they're mostly, they're not that colorful, I guess it's mostly blue, but they're, they're these really cool looking images with, with these different patterns on them that represent the, uh, the binary, that represent this, this recovered file that he has uh, that's been converted into an image. So uh, he doesn't really go into detail about how he, created these or whether they're actually real or what files he used or any of that um, and I couldn't find that anywhere on online so maybe I just didn't look hard enough or maybe it's just not out there or maybe it's proprietary because he does work for a, a research group um, the name is escaping me now but he does work for a research group so maybe it's something that they that's not public at this point um, but I, I kind of that sparked some questions for me one of which was is it actually feasible? Is it a good idea to try and do this with with binary? And I, I I've got to admit, um, I was kind of skeptical because when when we were in our reverse engineering class, never, not once, did we look at you know actual ones and zeros. Like it was always hex, or we would usually we were working with code, so it would be like the assembly. Um, and I, I kind of felt like this TED talk was like popularizing the idea that reverse engineering is about staring at ones and zeros in these big. Uh, just completely unbroken blocks of text and, and ASCII ones and zeros, uh, and that that has never been the case for the that all but limited experience. I, a very limited experience, but it's never been the case in the way that I've worked with it. It's always been working through tools, uh, looking at the hex instead of the binary. We're looking at we use this tool called IDA Pro, which is I think an acronym for Interactive Disassembler, yeah. um, and that was a very powerful tool that sort of took this binary and turned it into the codes and showed the relationship between the, the flow of the code and all, all of that and made it a lot easier to figure out what was going on. But maybe this was a better way. Maybe somehow it was faster or more efficient for, for humans. So uh, I w tried to find... So I wanted just a simple way of mapping some binary file to which is essentially all files are going to be stored in binary on a computer, so any file, into 
a, an image. So the simplest way I could think of was basically just take, split it up into bytes, um, have a box, have an image with a bunch of, bunch of boxes, and shade the boxes according to how often that byte appears. Um, so it took me like maybe an hour to code up in Python. Uh, it was kind of a practice run for me because I've been kind of doing some stuff with, with Python at work and trying to, to get more practice under the belt with that. So shout out to Chris for Chris Wright for helping me out with that. Um, anyway, I come up with this really simple program. It actually just maps the frequency. So more, more frequent byte codes would be darker. Um, I just did it in black and white. So they would be more white, and the less frequent ones would be more dark. And I came up with images that looked kind of like what uh, Chris was, was describing in his TED Talk. Um, and that was cool. So at least among the different file types, you know, you could discern between what was a, a, a text file of lorem ipsum or just random words versus an MP3 file, which looked like this massive multicolored uh, jumbled boxes, which I think Jim has up on his screen now. Um, yeah, so the one that he has there is... Kind of, you, you see in the, the ASCII one, I think, is kind of the, the easiest, and it kind of makes sense. The way that I laid it out, so they're contiguous, like it goes, you know, the byte code for 60, 61, 62, are all right next to each other horizontally in a line. You see those in the lorem ipsum text. They are shaded, like you see these two like horizontal bars where the 26 lowercase and 26 uppercase letters are, and those are, are pretty, uh, I want to say dark, but I guess light. They're, they're shaded white because they're very frequent there. Um, the images, there's not really quite as much pattern. Same with the the uh, the movies or, or videos. But the programs, you kind of had a similar thing, and I think that that might be where the most of this potential is because if there's some sort of uh, pattern and code that you're looking for. So maybe the, the, the other motivating example that Chris gives is you, you're, you, these terrorists have a phone that's going to be used to blow up a bomb, um, and you need to blow up the phone instead so they can't do that. And you're trying to find the code to, to control that. Well, maybe it's possible to somehow find a pattern that represents that power code among all this other code for contact management and applications and just other, other applications that are on the phone. So potentially there might be some sort of binary pattern that represents code to manage power on the phone, and it, it might be decipherable to humans. So I think that's where the real potential lies, and that's kind of... You get a glimpse of that with a program binary. So that was pretty much the, the first part of the experience. Like, yes, it is feasible to create these images. I mean, I guess that's kind of intuitive. Like, there, there's definitely some way to, to come up with binary images. And it is, in fact, possible to decipher between at least file types. Um, and I'm sure if you were with enough practice or better image processing, you could decipher between different types of code. Um, but I'm honestly not sure how useful this is in terms of, you know, I'm going to use this exclusively or I'm going to use this instead of these other really powerful tools that are out there like Ida Pro or, you know, just a, a simple disassembler like that. And the reason why is if you have those easily recognizable features as images, then there probably is underlying features in the binary code itself, certain patterns that exist there, that would just as easily be able to identify these things, if not easier, because that is the actual manifestation of the patterns themselves. So that was kind of the, the process I went through with that. I'm sorry if I rambled on about it for, and 
at that point, you probably are like, well, I should have just read the darn article. But hopefully, that gives you some of the <laughs> some of the insight behind what I was I was thinking when I wrote it and was going through my mind. So I don't know. So Ashton, did we talk about the visualization techniques that are used here on larger applications? Are there any real insights that this technique can give for understanding, um, I guess, uh, program control and code flow, or is it really just to give you the higher level abstract of here's what these zeros and ones might represent if they're on a computer? So I think there, that, that, what I'm saying, yeah, I, I agree. I think the real potential for it would be if you could <clears throat> find code constructs like, you know, the code that controls the battery of a phone, the code that is responsible for the, what the virus actually does on the computer versus just this is code uh, or versus a, an image or something like that, which you probably would have been able to figure out anyway. Um, and I think what you'd have to do there to make it work is instead of just looking at, you know, I just did frequency for, for one-byte segments, and I think what you'd have to do is group them into, like, three or four or more byte segments or even like patterns that are commonly used for loops or or uh, calls to the the system or something like that, um, and instead of just looking at the individual byte frequency, uh, and maybe that way, if you looked at it in smaller chunks of the program, so those two things, looking at more bytes uh, for each of those blocks on the image, each of the pixels essentially, right. and smaller chunks of the code. So you know, this is the first, you know thousand bytes, and that's the second thousand bytes, and maybe that way you could more easily uh, detect actual code constructs just as versus just being like, okay, this is a certain type of file. Yeah, I'm wondering too, though, if you, you know, if, let's say you take an executable and you disassemble it into assembly, um, how could you modify the visualization technique to basically um, look at the different... Um, Machine machine instruction sets, and are there any particular patterns that emerge that indicate that you know some higher system level call or function is going on that might be indicative of you know a file access or uh, a memory issue, etc. Um, I bet that could easily be extended up a level if you wanted to get it to go one step above zeros and ones and get to the actual um, get to the actual I guess first tack at doing a, a code execution um, visualization. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I think that if, if you were to give me a set of, like, here's some common code constructs. Here's a for loop. Here's, uh, you know, a specific type of common operation, some system call. Here's something that renders the, an image to the screen. Then I wouldn't go, okay, I'm going to try and make these into images. I would probably go, all right, I'm going to see if I can find some patterns in the binary and map those up with match those up with the the labels that you gave me which are you know the, the code constructs and then I would probably apply some sort of machine learning algorithm and not try and make this uh, a human vision perception problem right. um, and that's kind of the the closing point that I make is if it is I, I agree with Chris like this is not easy information for a human to digest it's just not in the form Format that we normally interact with the world, but that is how com computers interact with it. So why not you leverage that machine to solve the problem that it kind of created? Um, and I, with that, I, I mean maybe that's kind of abstract, but to give a specific example, like I said, I would probably use an algorithm 
that took in as inputs those that binary code and the name of the code construct and had it have it learn. Um, there are plenty of algorithms. I would be very surprised if one of the machine learning algorithms wasn't able to learn the actual features of binary that that are indicative of those those parts of the code. Uh, and it was funny too when you uh, told me you were working on it because in theory, if you get this to be if you were able to make it really descriptive, right, where we could start doing program, program flow and analysis, I was, you know, recently in the news, we've heard a lot about um, Jeep and Chrysler recalling their vehicles because uh, they can now be hacked wirelessly where anyone can uh, basically, you know, 1.4 million vehicles for Chrysler. I don't know how many it was for Jeep, but Chrysler recalled 1.4 million of their newer model vehicles because you can wirelessly hack into them and uh, control brakes and transmission and steering and the whole nine yards, which is just amazing that any, um, you know, any system uh, that is installed in a, in a car's computer like that is so integrated that, you know, what you connect to over the internet is also what is, you know, is not a separate computing device from, hey, here's what controls the brakes, here's what controls the power steering, etc. Um, and I was thinking, wow, how cool would it be if you could just look at all the source code that's in these types of embedded devices and make a quick visual of it um, using this type of technique and say, hey, where are maybe some of the, the heat map areas to have, you know, if you, if you have a system that's millions of lines of source code and you're trying to ensure that your security team does its, you know, final review and check before this code gets out in the wild, what's the fastest way you can determine where the most valuable time should be spent in reviewing the source code, right? Um, so it'd be really cool if you could basically build a blueprint pretty quickly that said, here are the areas that do, you know, the, the either the most work or the most strange operations or the most sensitive operations and then visualize that. Um, but yeah, I think I think that's an interesting technique. Um, I'd love to, both Jim and you to comment on what you think about the whole car incident to begin with, uh, because I find that a huge um, reverse engineering uh, talking point. Uh, not only because of of the fact that it's you know manipulating a bug, uh, which is a lot of what reverse engineering is, but even what Ashton is doing with visualizing code and in some degrees is reverse engineering, right? You're taking something that is built through a particular source system or through a particular lens and then you're trying to understand it in the kind of raw output form um, as it exists today. Um, so, you know, I, I find that pretty interesting and intriguing um, and, and really kind of almost shocking that, you know, these computer systems are so integrated that the engineers didn't even think what the risk could be of having a you know an entertainment connect con connected system that's connected to the internet um, also be the you know the same system that controls the internal uh, operations of the car. I find that fascinating. Christian, I find it kind of irresponsible that that I mean this isn't like 1995, right? I mean it's just it's not like security isn't an issue today, like we haven't been talking about it for the last 15 years, that having a having a car with a dedicated cellular connection, that's basically the way they're hacking into this, is through a Sprint connection that's on the car. Not like any of those things are new, right? I mean, it's right. kind of like, 
I mean, I don't understand all the ins and outs of it, but it's a little, it's surprising and it's not, kind of state of the American automaker at this point. It's just kind of like, come on, guys, you should, if you're going to do this kind of stuff, you should probably hire a hacker, an ethical hacker, to make yeah. sure someone is running, you know, pen testing on your right. vehicles, right? I mean, we've all talked yeah. about this, right? One of the big things with these types of devices, though, is because a lot of them run on like embedded OSs or embedded systems, or I mean, I can't, I can't even tell you how many embedded systems run on Java, right? Or how many ATMs run on Java. Uh, um, I, it kind of puts you at a larger risk, right? Because everyone's kind of using the same cookie cutter code base framework in their company or whatever, and then just building crap on top of it. And when you're in the embedded space like that, I feel like there are definitely a lot more. Uh, gaps in where source code gets reviewed and, and marked as trusted uh, versus just kind of letting it out in the wild and saying, well, it was bundled with these other libraries, we're going to throw it together and call it a day. Um, you know, it's harder to have really strong, good uh, OS kernel security in that kind of model um, when you're not really taking the time to see where is this embedded system you know, where, is, where are its core system calls from? Um, and the fact when you try and... I feel like we've seen time and time again whenever you try and add these, you know, advanced features, the interconnectivity, you know, now it's connected to a, an, a hot Sprint 4G connection from wherever. When you start putting all these feature sets on top of something that was inherently de originally designed to be not featureless, but I guess state stateless in the sense that it has... Well, no, stateful in the sense that it kind of only has one or two known states and it has a particular function, right? Um, you know, a radio has the purpose of being a radio. It doesn't have the purpose of being a radio and a, and a, I don't even know what else you would want a radio to do. It, uh, you know, it's not, it's not, your FM radio doesn't connect to your RSS feeds to get podcasts for you too, right? And I feel like that's kind of what we've done with these embedded systems is they were originally intended for one thing and now they've kind of been redesigned and abstracted as, hey, this has a transistor in it, therefore it's a computer, therefore we'll compute whatever we want on it. Um, and so there's actually some interesting dangers to doing that, um, much like, you know, with televisions, right? Televisions used to kind of have their own embedded set-top box and no one really knew how to get into the set-top box. They just you know, the cable came in, the cable company had a set program put on that embedded system that sucked in the video image, put it up on your TV, and you had a TV guide, and that was it. No one, it wasn't an interconnected device, you weren't recording TV on it, you know. Now those systems are largely vulnerable because they're regular, ordinary computers, so uh, associated with that feature set are all the same vulnerabilities, and now we're basically saying that our our cars are just as interconnected, and I, you know, I made a funny tweet about it. Um, smart cars are not so smart because now they're um, at the same risk level as your cell phone or your computer, and that's pretty fascinating. Given that you know these are moving objects at a 70 miles per hour, whereas my computer is a stationary object on my desk. So uh, I find that really interesting that we've basically trusted the same security model for very very different types of devices. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, it, this is kind of, this is all kinds of scary because, it's, I mean, the reason that you're talking about is scary and not just from the car perspective. I mean, yeah, but part of it is like, well, they not only 
were able to hack into my car, but because I was using my car to do my radio and my podcasts, and I also do online banking, and I have my whole life savings in my car's hard drive, like it's all becoming kind of one thing, and I'm, I'm exaggerating, but you kind of lose more than just the, the control of the car. You could also potentially maybe lose let's just say the password that you use on your car Pandora radio and from there maybe even your email and from there your banking information so I mean it gets to the point maybe maybe that's a stretch but you know maybe not I, I feel like we're kind of getting to the point where it's like you can have your your fridge hacked and also lose you know your your email address and, and kind of one fell swoop um, but also the 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 scariness of like the cyber world kind of coming in and interacting with physical moving infrastructure and and you know traffic and all of those things is is terrifying to me. I mean like I kind of have my my uh nightmare of of like a dystopic future is it the result of cyber hackers getting into the infrastructure like this and actually causing real you know real life damage and not just you know, you lose your information, but you also shut down the power grid, let's say, or you, you're able to hack into cars and cause accidents and stuff like that, and that's just terrifying to me. So let me ask the two of you, right? I mean, you're future cybersecurity, you know, employees for us doing this kind of stuff. You're in a, in a, you know, in a system that is talking about this. Christian, let me start with you. What's the right thing to do here from a you know, this is Jeep's problem. It's Chrysler's problem, right? 471,000 cars. What, what do they need to do? What's the right thing to do at this point to, to ensure this doesn't happen again? Or, you know, what do we learn from this? Yeah, so there were actually a couple interesting things that they did in terms of a response, which I always look at, you know, the fact that it happens is, is one area of analysis, and then the fact of how do they respond to the incident um, tells a lot about what, kind of shop it is and how they're thinking about the security issue. Um, the interesting thing here that was really kind of nicely made a made a nicety over what was inherently not nice um, was that they patched the attack by patching the Sprint network itself, right? Because typically in this type of situation, you would have to patch, you know, millions of devices that, you know, only half the owners are ever going to even know that it needs to be patched to begin with, and of the people who know, maybe only half are going to actually do it, right? So um, they worked with Sprint as the network provider to actually uh, figure out how the attack connects and block it, those types of traffic from the Sprint network itself so that it can never get to the car. So that's really smart because that's it's very rare that you see a corporate response or that there's a feasible technical implementation uh, that allows you to get kind of a 100% patch rate, right, which is what they were able to achieve here. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think in terms of what types of standards do we need to set going forward, um, this really speaks as an Internet of Things problem. Um, honestly, uh, it's the first time I've ever grouped cars as being part of the Internet of Things, um, but clearly we're there. Uh, and, and really, when we talk about an Internet of Things device, I think we need to be talking about a, t a separate type of security model than when we talk about a home computer or an enterprise computer or your laptop, because these Internet of Things devices really tend to be on these 
uh, inherently untrustworthy networks where they can be talking to anyone or anything at any time. And when you have this very open playing field, um, you know, what are the sensible things that you need to do to protect yourself? Uh, I think one of the biggest things is limiting the feature set of what that Internet of Thing device is designed to do, right? Stop making IoT devices that do everything. They, it, it's a gadget for a reason, you know? It's like the guy who wears the belt that has all the different gadgets, and each gadget has its own purpose. Uh, I'm not saying making redundant stuff or don't be intuitive or smart, but, um, you know, again, sometimes I wonder what features we're putting in these devices and why. Um, when we look at um, how to securely and smartly and efficiently push uh, vendor software and security updates to these systems, that's, I think, even a more unique uh, challenge in the Internet of Things space because, uh, again, very rare that you would see something like Sprint where they can blanket patch all of these systems uh, in this type of situation, but how can we be smart about uh, upgrading these devices and really uh, what is the smart thing we can do that almost forces the user to get common sense security upgrades done automatically, right? Because I can't tell you how many times I see... Uh, home computers that don't have automatic updates turned on or or that person hasn't rebooted their system in 90 days so they're not patched, right? What are the uh, common sense, hot, always-on devices uh, patching techniques where devices can automatically receive and push new security patches without having to reboot, without having to click an install, and without ultimately crashing and bricking, right? Uh, what kind of testing can go in those uh, procedures beforehand? Um... I think I've said multiple times on this podcast and others that uh, one of the scariest things for me was hearing Google say the statement, we want to build the operating system that runs the Internet of Things, because that means Google runs the Internet of Things, and I really don't know how I feel about that. Um, but what I can tell you is that one thing that's interesting about that model is that if you have the Internet of Things running on a majority uniform platform like that, allows you to do some interesting things with kind of those security automation, automatically pushing new updates, uh, having a common embedded kernel that actually makes sense for a common feature set, right? I think we really need to get a solid definition of, hey, what is a common feature set that every Internet of Thing device needs, right? Uh, clearly, connection is the, the number one feature of any IoT device is it has a connection. Um, beyond that, what are the other features that are shared by, you know, 95-plus percent of IoT devices. Um, and I think that's where we really have to start our analysis if we're ever going to kind of find where the where the right niche is for Internet of Things security. Yeah, I, I, I mean, like, I just, the only thing that, well, one of the things that I'm worried about with cars specifically is that there will be this kind of critical mass of cars, and I feel like we reached it kind of prematurely because I didn't know that that many cars were connected to the internet, but that there will be kind of a critical mass of cars where, you know, maybe only 1% of them have this 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 uh, bug or this um, vulnerability that allows them to be hacked and, and effectively destroyed, but I mean, when you have 100 of the cars, then statistically it, it, it could definitely happen, and I, I think even 1% is kind of a naive assumption and we've seen that there's probably not 100 cars on, in the world, 100 different models of cars in the world that have internet connection already. They're, they're being hacked. I mean, it's possible <clears throat> It's possible that it's just because it, it's the initial sort of 
unveiling of them and, and they haven't really put a lot of thought into getting the security perfect because they're so focused on making this this Internet of Things connected and, uh, you know, have lots of different bells and whistles and not so much be secure and safe. But I feel like that's kind of reflective of the public in general too when they're going to be buying these cars is uh, you don't think, I want a secure car. You're going to probably be thinking, well, that's cool. My car has Internet. So I, I don't know that it's like gotten to the point where, where people have caught up with the idea that, you know, if I'm going to get this fridge that's connected to the Internet or this car that's connected to the Internet or whatever it may be, um, what kind of risk is that going to involve? And I, I, don't, I don't know what the lag is going to be between when it's available and when people realize that, hey, th this, this, this could be risky. Well, you know, it, it, what's, I think what surprises me the most is the autom automobile manufacturers are the slowest to embrace technology oftentimes, right? I mean, Ford Sync was a big deal, but it was really using a Windows mobile platform that was pretty old, uh, you, you know, to, to run uh, Ford Sync. And so they have been, you know, Ford was out in front with this. Chrysler's coming in behind with these with these versions. I they're just they're they're typically slower. I'd love to see them take a little more time just to kind of make sure, like, hey, you know, we should probably make sure this stuff is is working right and 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 people should know. Because Christian, to your point, um, these are missiles, right? We are sending people out in vehicles that go 70 miles an hour. And while it's cute to be able to shut someone's car off, right? This this is the common thing that as we as we look at the article, you know, you can kind of shut the whole thing down. Well, that's cute. That's not real cute at 70 or 75 miles an hour or whatever, right, when you're driving. So take some controls away from the people. So Ray, who is listening to us out there on Twitter, uh, dropped me a note. He had said, uh, the fact is when it, be, when, it's, uh, when it became Jeep's problem, it became the consumer's problem also. And that's true, right? We've, uh, do we have a public that is ready? Christian, you said this a second ago. Only half of them are going to know they need to update it, and only half of those are going to even update that. Think of the problems we have on the PC side, getting people just to update. I mean, think of the iterations that Microsoft has gone through, the hoops they've jumped through, to force updates for the consumer onto the onto Windows to make that thing work. Google gets around it just by they never they never not offered them right. They just came out and said, "You're getting updates whether you like it or not." Right. <laughs> you know, we talk about Chrome OS or we talk about the browser, some of those things. Uh, Max uh, uh, suffers from the same idea. Now we got to think about I've got to update the OS in my car to make sure, right? I mean, all of a sudden, and it does concern me when we think about open source models that haven't been tested in this area, right? We're talking about some fairly new technology, some new gadgets, some new items that haven't been thoroughly tested, and we know open source isn't necessarily the most secure or the most trustworthy of software, even though it should be, it's not, right? We know it has just as many vulnerabilities and just as many problems as as the, the stuff that's being built by companies. And so, I, I don't know, I get real concerned in that. Although, I say that on one breath, and then the next breath I go, man, this is really cool <laughs> stuff they, they got coming out, right? I mean, I want to pull my car into the garage, and I want it to start, I want it to connect to my Wi-Fi automatically, by the way, and I want it to start downloading stuff, right? Hey, I've got new podcasts, there's things, you know, I don't. I'm. I'm content to not necessarily have a cellular connection full time in my car all the time. So maybe I don't need that. But it would be nice to pull it in the garage and it starts updating with a hard drive that's on the car. And Ashton, to your point, there may be a time when I would want to do banking transactions, in or at least let the passenger do them from a console in my car. Right? 
So I, I wouldn't I wouldn't call that too far. There you go, extending those features again, Jim. <laughs> well, but it's yeah, I know. I'm just saying I, those are two sides. I mean, I, I was highlighting the two sides of the equation. On yeah. one side, I'm like, man, this is scaring the hell out of me, and then on the other side, I'm like, but I can see all the I can see why, you know, from a consumer standpoint. And I, I think it's kind of a, a a problem where you have that trade-off between convenience and security, and when you start to have these all these devices that are interconnected and very, very convenient and very they have a lot of features and they're, they've got a lot of bells and whistles, um, but at the, the cost is that they're maybe not super secure and the more ways that you have to log into your bank and the more ways do you, more uh, little tentacles that you have reaching in and, and withdrawing and, and depositing money, the more attack vectors there are because there's more ways to interact with it and that, that just creates exponentially more problems. Yeah, it creates a larger attack surface for yeah. sure. Ray also says in his in his uh, tweet, he says that's why he likes his 06 Mustang. So there's, <laughs> you know, something to be said. This could be a discussion that we have very quickly. Is like now classic cars have an advantage of right. This is technology that's pre-connected to the internet. And I don't know if, you know, with the exception of entertainment, I don't know if being a car being connected to the internet really brings you that many new options, right? It's not going to make it go faster today. Although I imagine in the future, imagine us having sensors on our cars that allow us to drive, to connect into a convoy of vehicles all going the same direction. You know, you plug in your destination before you go and they start connecting vehicles together, putting them in line to be able to shoot. It, especially here in Nebraska, right? To get from Omaha to Colorado to Denver is an eight-hour drive. I wouldn't mind just linking in with nine or ten or fifteen or twenty other cars, all going the same speed, all controlled by each other, right? From a braking and accelerating standpoint, there's some real there's some real advantages to that. If I could if I could actually pull that off, the cars would need to be connected. To, to get that to happen. Imagine the hacking surface or the attack surface on that, Christian. <laughs> yeah, I mean, imagine the day where you you combine the computer capabilities of what was in this Chrysler Uconnect with a Google self-driving car where your car is driving yeah. itself, talking to other cars on the road and automatically looking at the traffic patterns and saying, Who, who's going to go where? And the cars are basically auto-negotiating the driving for you so that there's no traffic incidents or, or, or congestion or what have you. I mean, that's a, it's a very different world that we live in, but the technology is there to do that. It's just the implementation is a gargantuan task that I don't know how many years it will take to actually get there. Yeah, that, that's the that's the thought that I had when when we started discussing cars as well. The combination of you know we, we have these cars that are able to be hacked and we have these cars that are self-driving and it seems like a recipe for disaster when you start to combine those things and when you describe the the cars and these you know, these, these ranks and rows and columns and files. And I'm just imagining, like, you turn off the power for the front ones and you have, a, you know, a 30-car pile up in a tenth of a second when when they slam on the brakes there. Um, so, I mean, it kind of gets it gets exponentially more <laughs> scary and, and, and risky when you, when you start to have all these things communicating with each other and... Yeah. Yeah, but with more benefit. I mean, yeah. think about it, when the car, you know, when vehicles were first coming out. There, there's quotes like of scientists saying, you know, the human body cannot withstand, you know, going any faster than 30 miles an hour, right? Because that was they just, you know, it's just what these thoughts of 
I can't imagine a vehicle that would go any faster than that because that's they didn't at the time they didn't have anything right to do it. And so when we think of uh, when we think of that, I, I mean, I do think of a time when the the interstates and you know we used to think of how are we going to do this? How's this going to work? Well, Google's doing it today, right? They've got these self-driving cars. There is no nothing that would stop us from like you're saying, Christian, to regulate those around, right? Do, do smart routing. So, you know, you, you're getting the, to where you're going the most efficient way. But I think the biggest technology would be Airstream technology to put these vehicles, to connect these vehicles together that are going to common locations and, and let them drive in unison, right? It would save on gas. It would be more efficient. It would, to your point, Ashton, if you close the, shut the first one off or there's a problem with the first one, they would need to react or respond accordingly. But but um, while that seems impossible today, 10 years ago, we thought self-driving cars that have well over 10 million miles on them was impossible. And it's very possible with what Google's doing right now, and they have a lot of miles on those cars. Yeah. All right, what else? Anything else we want to... We want to hit on this. Well, this is so interesting. A, a non kind of a non traditional cyber frontiers. Really practical. Yeah. <laughs> We're getting scary like that. Practical academics are the most dangerous types. What? Um, but uh, the the one of the articles on the Jeep thing does mention that two uh, U.S. senators uh, introduced a, a bill for the uh, setting having car manufacturers meet this minimum security something that's going to make this other something prevent cars from being um, exploited. Um, of course, you know, it always makes me laugh to see senators who are inherently technically clueless um, make these types of blanket assessments on how they're going to fix security problems. But it's nice to see that it's at least given some love up on the hill, but they really need to be bringing in... Um, you know, technical experts from the industry to inform Congress because Congress on its own making these blank calls is is kind of a scary thing for me. So I hope I hope they call in some of the the technical experts uh, on those kinds of conversations and bills because let me tell you some of the implementation that I'm sure they could they could dream up uh, in their wily minds. Um, can be a pain in the ass for industry to implement and not really do a lot, and it can end up wasting money. Um, and even if the industry does it, as we've seen uh, from last episode, uh, you know, the, it, the burden is always on the private sector to implement and follow all these rigid standards. And then you have things like OPM, which is just a wide gaping hole in which you know they're a government agency and they're not following these rules. So. Um, Interesting to see legal kind of slowly struggling to keep up with technology, which is probably outpacing it 10 to 1 easily. Um, but it's definitely a component of the overall problem that also needs to be solved, not just the technology. Yeah, and I mean, it, it kind of, it, it just seems to be kind of too little too late when when you try and implement those policies for, you know, between the senators not having a great technical knowledge of, What's really the problem, and the you know the I I wonder if there will kind of become a there will come a day when these car manufacturers will in fact have more computer engineers than the engineers working on the 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 mechanical components of the car, and where the routing and the the communication between the cars and the 
the analytics involved to, to get the cars to follow the road and not hit pedestrians and not hit each other becomes a, a bigger problem than, you know, how fast the, the uh, using mechanics to see how fast you can get it to go or, or aerodynamic or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no, I agree. Ken in chat said um, he could have used, and I think this is the, the this is the problem, right? Is he says I could I could have used one of those, you know, what we were talking about on his way home today. The traffic was so bad, anything would have been better than what he was, you know, what he was doing. So you know, having kind of the computer control uh, and know the traffic and get the best route, of course, is very convenient. So when you get options like that, of course you say yes, right? I mean, you're like, yeah, if it saves me time, if it's smarter than me, if it can look ahead. You know, we can do some of that on our phones today, by the way. I mean, it doesn't have to be built into the car. You can get traffic alerts. Hey, I'm headed this direction, and the phone should say to you, hey, that route you're taking is you're going to need to go a different way or just expect delays or, or what have you. But uh, for the two of you, I you know, I've seen this long enough in a couple iterations that while the government response to it is never enough, it's always too late, it's never, right, it's got all those problems, it has to happen, right? We have to see some some legislation happen. That's that's, But that's not the only thing that has to happen, right? We've got to get legislation going. We have to get the industry to listen to the consumer and, and actually care about this, the consumer. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, it only happens after litigation. So something has to go wrong. Uh, you know, and then and then huge lawsuits are filed, and then the com- then the industries change, right? I mean, we've just we've seen this. Think about every major change that's gone on in any kind of industry. It takes both it takes both litigation and legislation, and it's not a perfect system, but it eventually gets there, or it gets better, right? And so in this particular case, it's going to take, we're now at the probably the litigation, or we're getting close to it, because someone is going to get into an accident where this was the cause. And, you know, General Motors is going to get, or, you know, they're going to get sued. And then they're like, oh, okay, we better pay attention to this. At the same time, uh, state and federal government regulators will start putting some things in place that will kind of make a difference. It won't be great, but it'll be something. So... I think we need both. You know, those things those things just will happen. And of course as consumers we need to continue to put pressure on manufacturers to get it right, right? We need to buy the things that are right in this. And it takes a little bit of education, which is why you should be listening to Cyber Frontiers all the time. <laughs> I think there's kind of there's one other way that might be possible to kind of send the point home to to legislators and and the the, the policy side is demonstrations of the attack vectors and the the vulnerabilities before they become an issue. Like if you can have people at uh, Black Hat and, and DEF CON and these security conferences uh, that are able to hack into the cars before you know it, it's not actual people on the highway driving them, um, that could be really powerful. It's kind of more like what maybe a, a, a protest or a demonstration is for the civil rights movement getting legislation passed versus a, a horrible violent act um, resulting in, in litigation and eventually legislation. So there, maybe there's a different way to go about it where you have these you know, intelligent and, and motivated security analysts that are able to find the, yeah. the problems a little bit before they, they strike and are, are serious. Although they do that and then they say the fix is going to be a you know, million dollars yeah. to get it right and then the company's like, well, we'll take the risk. <laughs> you know, it's kind of what, let's hide this. The, a long history of 
let's hide this. We'll put this thing out. And, you know, yeah. Christian Ray says in uh, on Twitter, could the overall problem with OPM be the lack of funds and lack of knowledge? It, it's yes to both, right? Well, yeah, and I mean, I, I think I mentioned earlier in the in the previous show that you know, technologists like myself who want real challenges aren't going to be interested in working in an environment there, right? So, one, how do you attract talent to work in that environment? Two, how do you fund it? And that is why contracts have become such a popular part of our government where they fund and pay lots and lots of money to certain companies to bring in that type of technical talent uh, because sometimes you really have to buy you know, people. You have to buy teams um, that don't work for you but can do things on behalf of you. Um, and so, yeah, budget can solve problems in the sense of they can hire smart contractors who can solve these problems, um, but it really, I mean, I'm sorry, but there's there's nothing in my mind that says what they did with that system from a design standpoint was a budget issue. I mean, turning on basic encryption in any database is not a budget issue. So I really don't want to hear that as an excuse for why OPM failed because we've had encryption in data stores like that for 20-plus years, and it's a bombshell of surprise to me that they're, you know, from the CIO's office, no one knew how to do that. I mean, that's that's flabbergasting to me. Uh, but yeah, certainly budget plays a huge role in implementing kind of the latest stuff, but they didn't even have the stuff of 10 years ago put into the system. So I don't really want to put budget as the reason why this went south. I think there's a lot more uh, people reasons at play than anything else. Yeah, people are always the weakest link. Ashton, uh, Ken says, good call, Ashton. Ethical hacking needs to be more mainstream. A group of eth ethical hackers hopefully creates a company that the public trusts to test these products and to convey it uh, to the public in an interesting way. Is that what you were saying? In, yeah. In, yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, and sorry I haven't been more uh, on point with the the, the chat wing, but um, no, 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 you're fine. That's my job. You got, you got to let me do my job, man. I only have I something to do because I only have the one screen that's killing me. <laughs> that's the only thing I'm looking forward to back in New Jersey is I'm gonna have that nice 24-inch monitor and my laptop screen and everything will be happy again. But um, anyway, uh, yes, that that's 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 exactly what I'm saying, and I think that that's uh, I I don't think it do I don't know that it can do the whole job, and I still I I, I still kind of agree that it's going to take, un unfortunately, I think it's going to take some really gory, gruesome, awful accidents with these these cars piling up and exploding and, and shutting down due to hackers to, to get this to go through. But maybe we can avoid some of that if, if we uh, get people involved that, that can say, hey, wait, look at this. This is a vulnerability that needs to be fixed now um, before it happens. Yeah. No, I totally agree. Well, good stuff, guys. We uh, we don't know uh, when we're going to get back together again. Uh, Ashton, you head back to Omaha here pretty, or I mean, to um, to to New Jersey pretty quick. Yeah. I, I hope you're going home on the break, and uh, to get to get to at least spend a little summer uh, and have a little have a little bit of time off before you go back to school. Do you have any little vacation planned in between? Um, I think we might be going to North Carolina okay. to one of the lakes there. I'm not good. sure what we're doing, good. but. Yeah, well-deserved uh, rest for you before school starts again. Christian, things will crank up pretty quick here. And uh, before we know it, I'll be on campus at the University of Maryland, and uh, we'll be talking about school. It's going to be 
it's going to be crazy. I just talked with the Dr. Pertolo today about coming back. So oh, we're pretty, cool. yeah, we're pretty excited. Hopefully we'll get some strengths finder in there uh, at uh, the University of Maryland in uh, some of the classes that he's doing. And maybe if not this year, maybe next. Sometimes it takes a while to you know the wheels. It, the if we if we think about how manu- slow manufacturers move, yep. <laughs> education, right? Except for maybe the Aces program because it's brand new and it doesn't have any rules. But but once you get, <laughs> right, you guys are making those up as you go along, right? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, well, that's what I thought. Christian, are you uh, doing? I think we're both doing research with Dr. Perlow next semester. I think. Yeah, I'm still oh. trying to work that out with him, but that's the okay. the goal. Yeah, yeah, we should have him back on in the fall. By the way, maybe maybe we get mid fall, we get Dr. Perdlow back on and make him a regular mainstay here on Cyber Frontier. So, guys, it uh, it's been fun. I thought we'd podcast more this summer. To be honest with you, I had Ashton, I had control of Ashton's schedule, and I thought I had control of your schedule pretty good, Christian. But I thought I did too, and I don't. <laughs> apparently, I don't. And uh, we just got two, maybe three, done over the summer, but that's okay. We do appreciate you guys listening to Cyber Frontiers, and uh, as we get into the fall, we'll have more of these. We'll do them when we can. We shoot for Monday nights, but it's not every Monday night. Uh, the two weeks from now, these guys will both be traveling, and uh, and so we'll miss one. But maybe maybe three weeks from now, we'll get back. Uh, we want to say to you guys, if you're shopping on Amazon, we don't say this very much. We have an Average Guy Tech Scholarship Fund that we use, the AverageGuy.tv slash Amazon, if you're buying on Amazon. Many of you that listen to this program also listen to, to Home Gadget Geeks, and we talk about that. A little bit over there. We do have video uh, RSS feeds available for this. If you want to see us in living color do this, I don't know why you would, but if you want to, you can download the video, large video, small. Many of you do, and so thanks for getting that done. Mediafire, of course, supports us on that, and of course, Christian through Maple Grove Partners, of course, hosting us, uh, all the bandwidth, of all our audio bandwidth goes out via Maple Grove Partners, and so don't forget if you're looking to start a blog, and especially WordPress blog, Christian's pretty good at that. He'll migrate your stuff over, any any of that kind of stuff. Uh, he's got some space on his servers, and we'd love to ta- have you take it up. So uh, if you want to do that, just uh, head over to Maple Grove Partners, maplegrovepartners.com, and there's a little contact me, right? There's a little contact me yep. form yep. on there. You got some upgrades coming, maybe? Yeah, we've got some yeah. new hardware coming in uh, to support uh, more customers. Uh, I've actually gotten a good handful of listeners, heard from some new listeners a couple days ago who are interested in the service, so it's great bringing the podcast community on there. It was designed to be the platform for podcasters in, in many respects uh, for supporting WordPress sites and the like. Um, so, yeah, uh, we're looking forward to that, and those upgrades will be coming in August. Very cool. With that, we'll say thanks for listening. We'll be back whenever we're back. And, of course, if you want to catch more of this, if this is your first roll of Cyber Frontiers, we've got 23 more of these over at TheAverageGuy.tv Live. If you like this, we have a tech show we do on Thursday nights. We do that one live as well, 8 p.m. Central, 9 Eastern. All the shows are over at TheAverageGuy.tv slash live. Love to have you join us. And with that, we'll say good night, everybody. Good night. Have a good one.